Before we get into this episode, I recommend that everybody go back to episode 29 with Billy Bragg. The last 10 minutes or so of that episode makes a great companion piece to this episode. I encourage everybody to look that up. You can find it at otisgibbs.com. There's a SoundCloud player on the front page that has the entire archive. You can find all of the episodes there. friends, this is Otis Gibbs, and you're listening to Thanks for Giving a Damn. I'm sitting here in my living room in East Nashville. This is a personal journal. This is a bit of an experiment. I like to say right up front that I haven't the slightest idea what I'm doing, but I decided to do it anyway. And this show was founded with the idea that there are only two people in art that matter. There's a creative individual and the person experiencing it. And everything else is an artificial filter. This is a way for me to share things with you guys without any filters whatsoever. My guest this week is Jeremy Harmon. Jeremy works at the Salt Lake Tribune in Salt Lake City, Utah, and they've been compiling a huge Joe Hill archive online. And you can find that archive at joehill.sltrib.com. I met up with Jeremy at the Salt Lake Tribune offices, a place I never thought I would be. But we sat down and talked, and we recorded well over an hour worth of stuff. There's just so much, so many details. You know, people have written entire books, many books about Joe Hill. But the Salt Lake Tribune has spent the last year compiling this archive, and they've put it all online. And I really encourage you to look through it. It's an amazing, an amazing piece of history that they have. There's photos of Joe Hill that I've never seen. There's just so many uh, pieces of evidence that were not introduced in the trial, Joe, Joe in a rather favorable light, but um, there's no way that we could fit everything into this show. Like I said, we recorded well over an hour's worth of stuff, so I've edited this down the best that I can and just tried to give you a little bit of an overview, but I strongly recommend that you go to the archive at joehill.sltrib.com and check it out. But here's Jeremy Harmon. Joe Hill, he was a Swedish immigrant. Uh, He came to the United States in 1902. Not a lot is known about his first few years in the United States. He bounced around for a while. Uh, We know he was in uh, San Francisco during the earthquake because he wrote an article and sent it home to his hometown newspaper, uh, Yevla, Sweden. We know he was there. It's a really harrowing story. If you trace folk music backwards, you end up at him. You're going to end up at Joe. You know, like you start going back. And, you know, the family tree, he ends up being the root. I've said this to people before. You can tell me if it's fair. But we used to think of Bob Dylan as the next Woody Guthrie. They would think of Woody Guthrie as the next Joe Hill. Yeah. Yeah, that's true. You know, like, and think about that. You know, if you take Woody Guthrie out of the American folk pantheon, what happens? You know, the whole thing crumbles, right? And Woody, his big influence was Joe. You can't understate the importance of the music that this guy was writing. Just his impact on what became American music is 
I mean, it's, it's just huge. You, you, you can almost say that what would, what would the 60s have sounded like had it not been for what this guy was doing, you know, here in Utah in 1914, 1950. In about 1910, he joins the Industrial Workers of the World, uh, the Radical Labor Union, um, you know, one big union for all workers. Um, he joins up with them. And almost immediately, he starts writing songs for them. Um, his first song that's published for them is a song called The Preacher and the Slave, which in a lot of respects has kind of become a folk standard in America. But at the time, it was just this really biting criticism of uh, what was going on, um, where, where they were uh, in Portland, Oregon. We, we've talked before on the show about how a folk music tradition would be to add new words to a traditional melody. And um, is that what he was doing with these songs? Yeah, so The Preacher and the Slave specifically, uh, you know, he did that with a lot of his songs. Um, but The Preacher and the Slave uh, is a rewrite of a Salvation Army hymn called The Sweet By and By. Um, is what was going on in uh, Portland is, uh, you know, the IWW, they'd be having these street meetings. Um, they were really blasting these uh, labor com- um, hiring companies, hiring agencies. And so uh, they're speaking out against them. Well, the hiring agencies had this great idea. They hire the Salvation Army Band to go out and play whenever the IWW is holding a meeting, and suddenly you can't hear the guy on the soapbox because you've got trumpets and trombones and drums, and you know you, you can't hear it. So uh, um, uh, Joe started rewriting the Salvation Army hymns. So if the band shows up and starts playing, you can just sing along, you know. <laughs> but you're you're singing your own new words, and um, the preacher and the slave specifically take some very serious digs at the Salvation Army. Like one of the things they do, they call them the Starvation Army in the song, you know, because uh, uh, you got all these poor workers and the Salvation Army's coming around asking for donations. You know, the working conditions were just, um, you know, it was abhorrent, you know, and the, and the wages were just terrible. One of, one of the things that you would hear, so uh, and maybe this will help kind of give people an idea one of the derogatory terms for some of these workers, and, you know, particularly if you're from Eastern Europe or something like that, they'd call you a bohunk. And if uh, there, there's an idea in, in, in the mines here, I mean, I'm sure it was everywhere else around the Western United States too, but if a mine owner had a choice, you know, if there's some kind of cave-in, a fire, a disaster, or whatever down in your mine, and you have a choice between saving the bohunks or saving the mules, save the mules. It was harder to train a mule to go down into the mines than it was to find another hungry worker to go down in there. And so it was more expensive and more difficult to get an animal to go down in there than it was to get a person. So save the animals and the people, you know, well, we'll get, we got, we got plenty more of those, you know? And so these kind of conditions were really what the IWW was fighting against. And um, Hill's song, since we're talking about Joe, Hill's songs were an important, uh, like a really important recruiting tr- tool for the IWW. They were a really, uh, it was a really good way to get the message out. Um, Joe, I'm going to paraphrase this horribly, but he famously said that, um, you know, if you wrote a pamphlet and handed it out at a, at a rally, people are going to read that pamphlet once and drop it and forget what it said. But if you teach them a song, that's going to get stuck in their head, and they end up propagandizing themselves over and over and over again because they're just singing the song in their head, you know, and so the songs were a much more powerful way to get the union's message out. 
One thing you have to understand is this didn't happen in a vacuum. There have been real tensions between you know, authorities, polite society, whatever you want to call it, and the IWW all over the Western United States. Um, Joe could not have shown up in Salt Lake City at a worse possible time than when he got here. In the summer of 1913, remember, Joe showed up here late summer, early fall, 1913. So just a few months before he got here, the IWW had um, orchestrated and won a massive strike, you know, like 1,500 workers walking off the railroad job um, just south of here in a place called Tucker, Utah. It was a big deal. It was a big win. Um, the company they were striking against was a company called uh, Utah Construction. They got a bunch of their guards, put them on a train, sent them up to where these strikers were. They rounded up all the strike leaders, took them to Provo, um, which, again, just south of here, took them to Provo where the jail was, and these guys were in jail for 60 days after being arrested by private company guards. You know, um, They get out of jail in August, uh, um, of 1913, and they're holding a rally downtown, a victory rally, because they won the strike. They won. So they're holding this victory rally. Um, some of these same construction company guards who had arrested these guys um, took it as a personal slight that the IWW was holding this rally and you know slandering their good names and that kind of stuff. So um, they were in a saloon across the street uh, waiting for the rally to start, and drew straws as to who got to uh, be the first guy to take out the speaker. So this, um, this, uh, the rally starts with one of Joe's songs, which I just think is brilliant. They, they start with his song, Mr. Block. Um, the speaker gets up on the soapbox, and the signal that these guards had, this, by this time these guards had kind of infiltrated the crowd, and the signal was is one of them was going to raise an American flag. So he raises his American flag, and all these guards just start wailing on the Wobblies. Like they, the guy who's up on the soapbox, they club him. He's bleeding from his head. He tries to stand back up and speak again, and the, the reports from the Times say he's just, you know, blood is just like pouring off of him. And a full-scale riot, riot breaks out. Like uh, one of the Wobblies pulls out a pistol and just starts shooting people who are trying to attack him and stuff, and he, he shoots like four people before he's overpowered. And so you got 500 people approximately is beating the tar out of each other right in the middle of downtown Salt Lake City. I mean, like, right in the middle. And um, the fight attracts about 2,000 people who are cheering on the guards. And um, the guy who waved the flag, um, he's he gets shot, but he's not seriously injured. He gets up on the wobbly soapbox, and he's waving an American flag back and forth, saying, you know, if you want to say thing, bad things about my country, you got to go through me first. It's just like this big, crazy scene The Fire department comes down and it's spraying everybody with hoses, all that. So, and um, the only people arrested in this riot are IWW members. Um, the the guards who attacked the rally. There's no question that the guards attacked the rally. These are guys, security guards who work for the Utah Construction Company. There's no question at all who started the fight. The only people who get arrested are IWW members. You know, and these uh, construction company guards are all heralded as heroes in the paper the next day because they were sticking it to these wobblies. That's when Joe shows up here. Um, the Utah Construction Company, you know, said, you know, after the IWW had successfully done this strike, they say, you know, 
you guys, you beat us this time, but you caught us with our pants down. We're going to do everything we can to drive you out of the state. This is when Joe shows up. So he's in San Pedro. you got to start in San Pedro because that's where he was right before he came here. He met two brothers um, who were um, IWW members, uh, the Asalius brothers. He met them working on the docks down in San Pedro. And they came back up here, uh, the Asalius brothers, they came back up here to Murray, Utah, which is just south of here. You know, they came home and they told Joe and another friend, Otto Applequist, come to Murray. You know, there's a lot of, there's a big Swedish community here. You know, everybody's from Sweden. Come up here, live with us. You can work in the mines. There's railroads, there's construction projects. There's all kinds of things. You can come up here and work. Um, Otto comes first. Joe follows shortly thereafter. Um, Joe shows up here late summer, early fall of 1913. Nobody knows the exact date for sure because, you know, it's not like he checked in on Facebook, you know, (laughs) something like that. Um, But that's about when he showed up here. He got a job at the uh, Silver King Mine in Park City. Um, He got sick. Um, He spent two weeks in the miner's hospital up there. Uh, The miner's hospital um, had been built about 10 years earlier um, by the Western Federation of Miners. Um, you know, to take take care of the guys who get sick in the mines up there. He spent two weeks there, and then he came back down to Murray, where he was staying with this Asalius family. Otto, his friend, at this time, um, he was engaged to marry a woman named Hilda Erickson, who her family kind of lived down the street. You know, there, uh, there were these four families that were all really good friends. They all lived on the same street, the Erickson family, the Asalius family. So anyway, Otto and Hilda are engaged. Sometime right after Christmas, maybe a week after Christmas um, of 1913, Otto and Hilda's uh, engagement, Otto tells, uh, Hilda tells Otto, eh, I don't want to get married anymore. I don't really want to marry anybody. Sorry, we're we're through. Okay, so now now we've got it where it's uh, it's January 10th, 1914. This is where the Morrison family comes into the story. Um, uh, John G. Morrison... Um, the patriarch of the family. He owns a grocery store um, in Salt Lake City. It's about it's, it's about 800 South and West Temple. Um, he owns this grocery store. Uh, he and his he and two of his sons are closing up the store one night. It's a Saturday night, about 9:45. Um, they're getting the vegetables all gathered up because they have to take them home because they don't have refrigeration in the store. Things like that. They're just they're getting ready to close up, and two two uh, masked men enter the store and say, we've got you now, and they shoot him. They shoot John in the back. John's 17-year-old son, Arling, he's on the other side of the store, down a little bit. He pulls a pistol out of an icebox and shoots. The story is is that he shoots one of the intruders. He shoots one of the attackers, you know, shoots him. The other guy turns, shoots Arling three or four times, kills him instantly. There's a 13-year-old son named Merlin who's in the back storeroom and sees all this go down. After they kill Arling, the two guys run out of the store. Some neighbors around the store have come to their windows to see what's going on. They see the two men run out, and they vanish. Later that night, that same night, uh, Joe Hill shows up at a doctor's office back in Murray with a gunshot wound. When he gets there, um, he he tells the doctor, I got into a row 
over about a woman with my friend. He shot me. I don't really want to go to the police with this. Let's just keep it on the down low. Doctor, apparently that was a thing that you did in 1914. The doctor's like, okay, whatever. Patches him up. Another doctor then drives Joe home, takes him back to a, the Asalius house, and they're getting him situated on a cot. Otto is there. Um, Joe and Otto go in a back room. They talk to each other for a while. Nobody knows what they said to each other. The doctor's getting um, Joe situated on a cot, making sure he's comfortable and stuff. This is about 1.30, 2 a.m. And Otto says, hey, everybody, I'm going to go look for work. It's 2 a.m. on a Sunday morning, and everybody's like, what do you mean you're going to go look for work at 2 a.m. Sunday in January? What are you talking about? Yeah, I haven't had a job in a while. I'm going to go get a job. And he leaves. And nobody ever sees that guy again. He's just, that, that's kind of one of the mysteries. Okay, so uh, the doctor sees in the paper a few days later that the police are looking for a guy who's been shot. And uh, the governor's office has offered a $500 reward for information leading to the arrest and conviction. Um, 1914, $500 is nothing to sneeze at. So um, the doctor uh, calls the police. The police show up. Um, long story really short. The doctor goes in and gives Joe a morphine shot, which is the first painkillers he's had, by the way, since, since the time he's been shot. Goes in and gives him some morphine, presumably to subdue him so that the police could grab him easier. The police go in, shoot him anyway. They shoot him again. They shoot him in the hand. And they arrest him and they take him to jail. Joe refuses to tell them anything. Like, he won't tell them how he got shot. He won't tell them where he was. He basically takes an attitude that, um, I don't have to prove I'm innocent. You have to prove I'm guilty. And he won't tell him squat. He won't tell his attorneys anything. He won't tell anybody anything. You know, so the, the state's position is, well, Arling got a shot off at one of these attackers. You got shot that night. Clearly, it was you. Um, thing is, there were uh, there were four people who were shot in Salt Lake City that night. You know, this time period, Salt Lake is the wild, wild west. You know, everything's cuckoo bananas. It's a Saturday night. Four people get shot. So we'll, four we'll, people were treated by doctors for gunshot wounds. Yeah. Did the police question them at all? Yeah, yeah, and um, yeah, question them and let them go. Um, Joe was the only one that they kept. First, they think the, that he's this guy named Frank Wilson. You know, that's a whole nother ball. Who Frank Wilson is is a whole nother thing. Like, he's a career criminal. Um, he ended up working for Al Capone. I mean, like, he was a bad dude. That's who they're looking for initially. Uh, he was also Scandinavian, about the same height and build as Joe. Um, but once they find out that they've got this wobbly sitting in their cell, it's like, Frank who? <laughs> you know? <laughs> One of the things that's so maddening about doing the research on it is, you know, there's all this stuff. You know, you've got these comments from the Utah Construction Company. You've got this fight. You've got, you know, the fact that originally in the newspapers, like the original headline in the Salt Lake Tribune says, uh, holdups kill grocer for revenge. You know, and it's because uh, uh, John Morrison, he'd been a police officer in Salt Lake City. There were at least three other times where he was involved in gunfights with people trying to rob his store um, he had told friends and neighbors that he was afraid that somebody in the neighborhood was trying to get him. You know, this is all leading up to the murder on, on in January. Flip side of that, well, so, you know, the original 
thought the original thing the police were going for was, well, this was some kind of revenge killing. Um, as soon as they realize they've got Joe in a cell, the revenge thing evaporates. Like it's it's not mentioned again. Nobody talks about it. It's not a revenge thing. The 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 prosecutor in the case acknowledged that they had failed to establish a motive for Joe to be in the store and kill John Morrison. The fair trial uh, narrative is or idea is, is really kind of interesting, and it's a tough one to grapple with because um, you know laws evolve, advocacy for the accused, blah blah. You know that that that's something that continues to evolve. So um, I think you can make an argument that under the way the courts worked in 1914, the trial was, I'm doing air quotes here, so people, fair. What, what you can't make an argument for is that he had competent defense. His attorneys were a joke. Like, they didn't know what they were doing. They had never, you know, these are court-appointed attorneys. These are guys who had never done criminal law. You know, they never they'd never done a, much less a capital murder case. You know, like these guys were w- way out of their league. Um, some of the things they let happen in the trial were just absurd. You know, they, they, they were just completely ineffective. And then on top of that, you've got a judge and a prosecutor who their actions just really seemed like, you know, the prosecutor gets up and says in his closing arguments, you know, we didn't really establish a motive, but guess what? We don't have to. He's an IWW. You all know what they're like. They all have black souls. You know, like it, that that was pretty much the gist of the case. You know, and also you know, Joe didn't really help himself, uh, you know, look sympathetic before the jury or anything. Uh, at one point in the trial, he just stands up and it says, you know what? There are three prosecuting attorneys in here. One of them's over there. Two of them are sitting here at my table with me. Um, there's nothing I can do about that guy, but these two I can fire. You guys are fired. Get out of here. You know, you're not working for the, you don't work for me anymore. I'm going to defend myself. So the attorneys start gathering up the papers. He's like, no, 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 no. Those belong to the defense. You're not part of the defense. Get out. You know, and the judge is like, what are you doing, man? Like, like, what are you doing? And, um, this has to look terrible to the jury. Oh yeah. 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 You know, it's just, it, it was like this big sensation. Like all the papers just went cuckoo bananas with this story, you know, like, like, what is with this guy? And the judge kind of let Joe fire his attorneys, which is your right to do. But um, he kept them on as like friends of the court to help Joe. So they were still there. And, you know, it, it's just really strange. After this particular day, you know, when the trial's over, um, they're kind of doing the outside the courtroom press conference, you know, that you see on TV where they come out and they're talking to all the reporters. And the reporters are asking him, Hilda Erickson shows up in court that day. And it's like this big, ooh, is that the woman? You know, is this this mystery woman that this doctor is talking about? And so they're asking her and they're like, so who is she? And they're like, we have no idea. He won't tell us. We don't know. And they're like, well, how do you, and they're just like, you know, we, we ask him. He won't tell us what's going on. We don't know what's up with this dude. You know, it's, it's just crazy because they, um, they just don't seem to know anything that's going on. So um, there was a there was a woman in town uh, whose name was Virginia Snow Stephen. She's kind of like a socialite. She was really interested in socialist causes. Like there had been other IWW members who had come and kind of stayed at her house for a while. You know, she was she was really sim- she was she never joined any of these groups or anything like that. But she was always very sympathetic, and she she believed that Joe was innocent. 
And so started working to, um, you know, believe he was innocent, believed he was being railroaded. So she started working to um, raise money for his defense, things like that. She got this guy from Denver who was a really famous um, labor attorney at the time to become interested in the case. He couldn't handle the actual defense, but said he, because he was busy on another trial, but said, you know, if, if it needs to go to appeal, I'll do the appeal. We'll get him off no problem. But this guy, his name was Orrin Hilton. Orrin Hilton gets this other attorney in town he knows to kind of come and sit in and help the these two guys that just are way out of their league. You know, but um, it was kind of too late. Joe initially didn't want the union involved in the trial at all. He didn't want the bad publicity for them. You know, he just, he, he didn't want any help. He didn't want any money. Then he's convicted. And the union's like, all right, enough. We're going to do what we can to help you in the appeal. And one of the things that they did is in um, a lot of the newspapers at the time, like Solidarity or The Industrial Worker, things like that, they started asking um, union members around the world to write in and express their outrages in petitions and, you know, things like that. And um, one story has it that the governor's office got something like 40,000 letters most of them were, you know, like it was everything from demanding that Joe be released, um, asking that he be pardoned, um, asking for a new trial. Um, there were some threatening letters. Um, you know, it just they were just pouring in thousands and thousands of letters. The president of the United States, um, Woodrow Wilson, he appealed for he tried to get a stay of execution twice. Um, he got he was he was able to get a stay of execution the first time. Some of some of Joe's supporters in the union, um, namely a woman named Elizabeth Gurley Flynn, appealed to the president and said, "You know, look, we need thirty more days. We think we can get the evidence together that we need to get him freed. We need thirty more days." The governor granted that first stay. Um, the um, Swedish ambassador was getting involved. Um, you know, there, there there's a lot going on. It's no small thing, the President of the United States, you know, sending a letter to try to get this trial thrown away or whatever. That probably didn't happen very often. No, no. I, yeah, I can't imagine it happening that often. One of the things that's interesting is as this letter-writing campaign is going on, you know, one person that a lot of people don't realize was uh, a wobbly is Helen Keller. And she wrote to the President of the United States and was like, you know, probably ought to help this guy. Helen Keller, to a lot of folks, for a very good reason, is a folk hero, you know, very much in her own right. And, you know. A symbol of what's right with, uh, with human beings. Yeah, yeah. You know, somebody who's overcome every kind of adversity and is, is just an amazing person. She was trying to stick up for Joe. You know, and part of it was um, so many people looked at what was going on here and just thought it was just ridiculous. You know, it just it just seemed so clear to so many people that this was a frame up, basically, and that um, you know that the trial wasn't fair, and that the you know the evidence against him, you know, um, the thirteen year old boy who witnessed the shootings, you know, you'd think that that would be slam dunk testimony, but he was in a back room. It was dark. He didn't really see the shootings happen directly. You know, I mean, he saw, he got he got a glimpse at the guys. But his, yeah, they're wearing the mask, it's dark in the store. And his description of Joe Hill on, on the stand, that, and this is how it's in the newspapers from the time, was that he was about the same height and shape 
is the guy he saw kill his dad. And, you know, and I mean, that, that was a testimony. And the newspapers, you know, and, and like, I'm sure it had to have just been so emotional for that little boy to be up there testifying about this. And the newspapers were like, you know what, if, if Joe Hill is convicted, it's going to be because of the irrefutable testimony given by young Merlin Morrison on the stand in the trial today. But that was his testimony. He's about the same size and shape. And then everybody was like, wow, slam dunk. We got him. Over the last year, I've gotten to know the descendants of John Morrison really well. And one of the guys I've talked to quite a bit is Merlin's son. Uh, he's, he, uh, his name's Merlin, too. He's, he's 80 years old. You have to have a lot of empathy for this family because John gets killed, Arlen gets killed. They're, uh, you know, he's a guy, he's running a little family business. He and his sons work there. They get dragged into this big, you know, like the labor fight at this time was, was no small thing. You know, like it, a historian and Joe Hill biographer, Gibbs Smith, I was talking to him and, he, you know, and he puts no fine point on it. He says it was literally a class war. Like it was literally war. You know, they're, they're fighting with each other. This family gets drugged into this whole big mess they have nothing to do with. You know, and so to them, you know, like Joe is the guy who killed Grandpa. You know, he was convicted. He's the guy who killed Grandpa. So, so for them, um, over the last hundred years, watching him become a folk hero where their family is kind of treated as a footnote on the story, you know, that's been a real, they don't like that. That's right, completely understandable. Yeah. And so, you know, like when I'm talking to Merlin Morrison, who's 80 years old, and he tells me, well, Joe did it because my dad said so, you know, you like you have to give him some space on that, right? You're like, yeah, okay, yeah, okay, you know. But even so, you know, the, the record we have of the testimony is he's about the same size and shape. Well, I'm, I'm six foot six and about 240 pounds. I'm the same size and shape of a lot of NBA players. I am not an NBA basketball player, you know, like I'm just not. I don't know. It's pretty wild. But so, so then he's convicted, though. He's convicted. And so anyway, this is the IWW gets involved. There's a letter writing campaign. They're raising money. There's rallies all over the place, petitions coming in, all this stuff. The second appeal from the president shows up on the eve of the execution. And the governor's response is basically, you know what? We played nice with you the first time. This is a state issue. You feds need to stay out of it. I went out and looked at his uh, the prison records that they have, and those are those are amazing artifact. You know, they're all handwritten, all that. But and it's got on there 7:22 a.m. executed. And there's a red X through it. I've got about 80 pages of um, reports that were written by undercover agents who were working for the governor's office, trying to infiltrate the IWW in the weeks leading up to and the weeks after the execution. And um, one of them gets in. And it is um, her description. It is a woman, too. And her description of what was going on is fascinating. Talking about the execution, the, her reports start on the day of uh, the IWW held a memorial service for Joe in Salt Lake City um, two days after the execution, so November 21st. Anyway, one of the things that's really fascinating to me is um, a couple days later, um, after the service here, they're at a um she runs into this guy named Ed Rowan. Um, they're at a house. Ed Rowan shows up. Ed Rowan was the head of the IWW chapter here. And he starts telling him about that morning. He wakes up. Joe wants them to come visit him. You know, Joe has 
put together a list of friends that he wants to be there at the execution. And um, so Rowan uh, calls the prison. The warden just lays into him and tells him not to come. You know, you and your guys stay away. Rowan gets off the phone. He's a little shaken. One of the women who was there says, look, you know, screw that guy. Joe wants us there. We got to be there. Okay, you're right. They all go up there. Uh, one of the prison guards comes out and says, you know what? Joe doesn't want you here. And they're like, no, that's not true. He wants us here. Nope, nope, you can't come in. We're not letting you in. You guys get away from here. You know, so uh, Joe wasn't allowed to have his friends there for the execution. And so they're standing around outside as the sun's coming up. And they're, 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 they're starting to wonder if maybe the governor has granted this second reprieve that the president has asked for. And then they hear the gunshots. And I just, I can't even imagine, you know, what that was like for the, 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 the undercover agent who's describing this, you know, as, as Rowan is telling the friends about it. She says, the women cried and the men raged. So that, that's the morning of the execution. And then she's at the funeral, you know, and like her description of the funeral is the most um, detailed thing I've read on it. She's there, you know, first person. She talks about walking up to his body, you know, it's in the coffin. She walks up to his body and he's dressed in a robe. He's got an IWW pin on. There's some red and white flowers. And she says that she stood next to the body and cried. And, but she's one of the spies, you know, and a man comes up to her, puts his arm around her to comfort her and tells her that uh, she can take, you know, she doesn't have to worry. She can take solace in the fact uh, that Joe showed so much courage in his last moments staring down the gunman. You know, I mean, it's it's intense. Weren't his last words yelling fire? Yeah, yeah, yeah. There's there's a couple of different versions of it, but they all end with the la- his last word to the firing squad was fire. How do you not become a legend if that's how you go out? You know, it's 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 a fascinating story. I I love talking about this agent because her these last month, the funerals and all that stuff leading to the ashes, like it gives you so, such a vivid picture of what happened. So they're there, they're at the funeral home. They're singing songs out of the little red songbook. Um, they're singing Joe's songs. Now it's time to escort his body to the, to the train station to be shipped to Chicago. So they've got this funeral procession. There's six uh, women, uh, pallbearers. They, they escort his body. Um, and it's in a hearse and the, Paul Bear is walking. Paul Bear is walking on either side, and they escort him to the train station. Um, only two people are allowed in to the train station. It's Ed Rowan, and then another IWW guy who his job is to accompany the body to Chicago. They're the only ones allowed in. Everybody else is kept out, and they're singing the song. They're just out there singing songs, and then the police eventually shoo them all away. So uh, that's on the twenty-first. On the twenty-fifth, there's another funeral in Chicago, and this one's a huge to-do. I think there were like 30,000 people at this, and it's Big Bill Haywood, who he was born here, by the way. He's, he's a Salt Lake City guy. Keeping with uh, Joe's last wishes, his, his body is cremated. I don't know, have, I'm sure you're familiar with the last will poem. My will is easy to decide. There's nothing to divide, all that. You know, like it's, it's just, it's this beautiful thing, but he talks about how he wants to be cremated so that his ashes can blow across the flowers and you know, some fading flower then will spring to life and bloom again. You know, it's cool. So they they cremate him. He's divided up into 
they put his ashes in 600 little packets, which the following year are distributed to delegates, IWW delegates, and told to take them home and, you know, spread the ashes everywhere but Utah. And um, they take them home, and, uh, you know, he was spread in 47 of the 48 contiguous states. I think it was on four continents. Uh, you know, it's just it's just amazing. It's, it's just, wow. Like, it's just such an amazing story. One of those packets made it to me. And um, it was Billy Bragg. Oh, Billy told me about this. That's you. That's me. Yeah, wow. I just, I hadn't, I've, there's been so much going on, I hadn't put that together. But yeah, I've got, I got him on the phone. And my first question was, so I read this story like a long time ago that you ate the ashes. Is that true? Oh, yeah. And he told me the whole story. But yeah, he told me about, oh, wow. Crazy. All these years later, a lot of people have talked about it and bounced back and forth. Is it fair to say most people today believe Joe Hill was either innocent or did not receive a fair trial? Yeah, I think that's fair to say. If people if people know the story, I mean, it's just clear that most people think he's innocent. You read uh, you read the the really good like academic, well researched histories on on this. And, um, you know, like uh, William Adler's book, you know, like he does a good job of presenting the idea that it was somebody else, you know. Um, you know, he presents a really solid story there. To put Joe in the store that night, you just have to make too many logical leaps. It's very sad because that would mean, besides him being executed wrongly, that there was a man that was murdered, and it's a man and his son, and that person never came to justice that did it. Yeah. Okay, so personal opinion. Like, uh, what happened to Joe is a total tragedy. What happened to the Morrison family is a tragedy, too. And um, as much as I think Joe Hill is innocent, I wish more people would um, be cognizant that uh, what happened to the Morrisons is completely unnecessary. Joe was in the fight. You know, Joe was in the fight. He very defiantly, you know, foolishly maybe, whatever you want to call it, refused to tell the state what he did. You know, you guys have to prove I'm guilty. I don't have to prove anything to you. Morrison's didn't ask for any of this. What happened to them is terrible. You know, if the state framed up Joe and executed the wrong guy, that means that they let the real killer get away. And that this family's attachment to this folk story was completely unnecessary, and they could have healed and put it behind them decades ago. One thing that, I, this is a whole other ball of wax, but one thing that's been totally unexpected as we've been working on this project is uh, we I was actually able to facilitate a meeting between the descendants of John Morrison and then Joe Hill's family in Sweden, and that was one of the most amazing nights of my life. Watch those families bond over this shared tragedy, even though they have totally different viewpoints on the facts of the night, it was it was beautiful watching them come together and just bond. It, I mean, it was, I can't even tell you. It was, it was amazing. One of the one of the things that was explained to me, I don't I don't want to claim ownership of this thought, but um, you know, like John McCutcheon was just here when I interviewed him. Uh, this was months ago 
talking to him about Joe's musical legacy. You know, and he repeated this at the performance last night. If you're thinking about the civil rights movement, try to name three or four speeches. You know, who can do that? You know, you, I have a dream, and then like, eh, okay, I'm done. But then, you know, how many, how many civil rights songs can you name? You know, how many war protest songs can you name? You know, like dozens immediately. And, um, you know, and that's the power of, that's, that's the staying power of music. And if Joe hadn't written these songs, nobody would be talking about them right now. You know, uh, there were hundreds of IWW guys killed in this time period for various reasons. But he, he's, he's just able to do this in a way that um, really resonates with people. And I think that's why everybody's still talking about him today. I think of it as um, it's a piece of American history, and I like to be reminded that there were people who worked under terrible conditions and sacrificed everything to try to make things better for generations to come, and they did, and uh, helped to build a better America and hopefully a better world. But, um, I think remembering Joe Hill is a way of remembering those people, those miners, those factory workers. Yeah textile mill workers. Yeah, it's kind of crazy to think that this, you know, hobo Swede who would rewrite church hymns became a symbol for just this whole, like, international struggle, you know, of the haves versus the have-nots. You know, like, he's the... He's the symbol of it, and... You know, the way the songs have carried on. You know, like, you could walk out on the street and ask people if they know, hey, you're, what do you think of that? We will sing one song, or what do you think there's power in a union? You know, a lot of people aren't going to know what you're talking about. It's, it's still really important to so many people. You know, I, Joan Baez getting up at Woodstock and singing I Dreamed I Saw Joe Hill last night. It's a big deal. I appreciate you inviting me here into the, the newspaper building and, <laughs> I never thought I would be in the building of the Salt Lake City Tribune. Yeah, yeah. I appreciate it. I'd like to thank everybody for listening in, and I'd like to thank Jeremy for inviting me into the offices of the Salt Lake Tribune. You can find out everything you need to know about Joe Hill at joehill.sltrib.com. If you'd like to help support this show, just go to otisgibbs.com and you can pick up a CD, a t-shirt. You can download any record I've ever made. You can buy one of my photographic prints. You can buy one of Amy's children's books. You can buy one of Amy's records. But anything that you buy, we'll mail from our living room to yours and we'll even put in a little thank you note. If you'd like to help out but you're a little short on cash, just go to iTunes and leave us a five-star review. Leave a comment. Subscribe while you're there and you'll get a brand new episode free as soon as it's available. But if you enjoy this show, or you enjoy my music, or you enjoy Amy's music, please take the time to tell a friend and help us spread the word. And if you'd like to send us a message, we'd love to hear from you. Just send it to info at otisgibbs.com. I'm Otis Gibbs. Thanks for giving a damn.